You're listening to The Robin and Boom Show, engaging the contemporary world with the great tradition. Find us on our YouTube channel, our Facebook page, or on our website at robinmarkphillips.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, here's today's co-host, Robin Phillips. Hello, and welcome to another edition of The Robin and Boom Show. I'm your co-host, Robin Phillips, and I'm joined with Jason Van Boom. Hello, Robin. So, there's a lot going on in the politics of the world today, both in America and in Europe, and that's what we're going to be talking about in today's episode. Jason's going to be asking me some questions about the American scene, and I'm going to be asking him some questions about the European scene. Excellent idea. Yes. So, Robin... As usual, President Donald Trump is dominating the political scene in America, and what we've been noticing especially is about the Mueller report, the Robert Mueller report, and there's been controversy both with his submission of it, the redacted publication of it by Barr, and then Mueller recently had a press conference. So you know, tell us what's, what's going on with that. Yes. Well, the, the press conference, uh, which which happened yesterday, I'm, I'm not sure when this podcast will deploy, but right now it's May 30th, and I watched it yesterday. It was really a watershed moment because Robert Mueller broke the silence for the first time since the release of the report. And he, he gave a press conference. Uh, the Democrats wanted him to testify before Congress, but he gave a, a short, short speech at the Justice Department instead, basically reiterating the conclusions of the report, which was, um, which included that he couldn't charge the president with criminality because of Justice Department guidelines that you can't indict a sitting president the, um, from the Justice Department. The way you do that is through Congress and with impeachment proceedings specifically. But um, as a kind of step back and look at the big picture, I think, oh, I think it's helpful to ask, what would it feel like if all the revelations in the Mueller report, were, if we were hearing it for the first time, if we were, um, if, if we were hearing the um, facts and the charges that are in the report, if we're hearing for the first time, because it, it would be shocking, and there would probably be bipartisan agreement to proceed with impeachment, because after all, the report details over half a dozen crimes that the president committed, um, and the legal scholar Benjamin Wittes spent a week analyzing every line of the report and found numerous instances of actual criminality or um, attempted criminality on the part of the president. But Mueller was careful not to actually allege criminality because um, only Congress can charge a sitting president with breaking the law. And the way you do that, like I said, is through impeachment proceedings. But the facts that Mueller uncovered in his investigation, just taken on their own, are a huge indictment against Trump. It's like saying, I have video footage that Jason robbed this bank, but I can't actually charge him with committing a crime until there's due process. 
And again, the only way you can have due process for a president is through impeachment proceedings. So with Mueller having kicked the can of the House, why is there this hesitation about proceeding to the next step? And we can maybe best understand this by contrasting it with what happened with Watergate. In Watergate, the scandal that brought down Nixon, the revelations kept building up from little scandals to larger and larger ones until eventually toppled the presidency. But in the present situation, it's reversed. Because in their hysteria against Trump, the left-wing media has been feeding us hyped-up speculations about him for the last two years. Uh, you know, everything from hypotheses about collusion with the Russians to speculation that Trump is a foreign asset. So then when the Mueller report was finally released, it all came as a bit of a letdown. It was very anticlimactic, um, especially um, as our initial exposure to it was Bill Barr's four-page summary that put a positive uh, spin on it, or at least some people felt that it did. And so the when we actually saw the details of Trump's obstruction of justice, plus all the lies and dirty tricks from almost everyone that was part of his inner circle, the basically things we already knew. And after two years of scandals, we're just immune to it. And that's why I said, what would it be like if we were hearing all of this, all of the information that's in the reports for the first time? Uh, we've been we've been on a drip feed of scandals for the last two years, and so the the details of of misdemeanors and even criminality within the report, the things we've grown accustomed to. Um, so to find that Trump interfered with the investigation to or attempted to so he could cover his back, that the Russians systematically interfered with our electoral process. Uh, it's just these things are boring now. Um, and my, my perspective is that this is kind of dangerous because th the envelope has been pushed further and further so that now the president can get away with more and more things that at one point would have been shocking, like, like defying congressional subpoenas. Uh, if a regular citizen did this, um, he or she would be facing 12 months in prison. So the way this has all played out has just worked to further and further push, push the envelope until we are now immune to things that at one time would have been shocking and would have generated bipartisan agreement for impeachment. Okay, well, let me recap some of what you said. So basically you're saying that you, I guess, agree with Justin Amash that President Trump has committed some crimes that would be worthy of impeachment, but you're saying that whereas ordinarily there would have been bipartisan consensus on that, it's not making that effect because the left and the mainstream media were going into hysterics and hyperbole, these crazy conspiracy theories about Trump, and now this created a big anticlimactic letdown that you think could be dangerous in the long run as a precedent for future presidents. 
Yes, I do. I do. And in fact, we may, it may be 20, 30, 40, 50 years, um, it may take that long before we really know the impact of what's been happening now. And we can look back and see the precedents that have been created. This, the whole Trump presidency has been creating new precedents, new ways people approach politics, new, new ways that the Republicans and Democrats interact with each other. And it may, it may be not, um, maybe take decades before we can fully understand the, the impact of this. But you're, you're completely right. The effects of the left-wing media um, was such that when the actual facts of the case were revealed, it's just kind of like blah. It's almost a vindication. Oh, yes. So Trump, um, Trump obstructed justice. Oh, yeah, we all knew that. Um, but he's not the Manchurian candidate. See, he's vindicated. Yes, he wasn't being yes, remotely exactly. controlled by Putin. So, so the science fiction <laughs> hypothesis has been nullified. So we'll let you know this obstruction things go forward. Robin, I'm going to make two controversial statements. I don't think they're controversial, right. but I, th I think in present climate they're the controversial. First controversial statement is: I am not going to comment on the Mueller report until I've read the whole thing. <laughs> so, like well, gather. Yes, because now, today, we're expected to react and make an opinion about something, even if we haven't read it. And my understanding from these reports about his his press conference is that Mueller's old school, and he's expecting people will read long things, and he's simply saying, read my report. This is what I said in the report. And you and I have been talking about cognitive frames of mind, cognitive habits, and how we're shifting as a society from older cognitive habits. He's assuming the habit of actually reading things. So I haven't read it, so I'm not going to make a comment. I don't know what Trump has done or not. The second controversial statement I'll make is Trump is neither Hitler nor Jesus. He is neither an existential threat to everything we hold dear nor is he a messiah figure who's going to save American Western civilization. He's different. Like you said, he's breaking a lot of precedents. Uh, there are things that he's doing that I think I would not agree with, but a lot of them are actually continuations of what was going on with the second Bush, George W. and Obama. So those are my two controversial statements. Yeah, that's that's a good point to end on to wrap up about Trump because I really want to um, I really want to ask you about the whole European situation. So there's just been these European elections, and and for for the sake of our American listeners, what what are European what are European elections? Um, you know, we have we have the different countries of Europe. And they they have national sovereignty, but there's also the European Union, and um, there's confusion in America. A lot of people they don't understand what's the difference between Europe, between European Union, between the Euro. How, how do all these things relate? 
um, what were the recent elections? Just can you give us a, um, a overview of uh, of, of the, the parse it out for us? Sure. Well, you know, it's not just Americans who are confused. Europeans are also confused about the European Union, and the European Union is confused about the European Union. It's intrinsically a very complex thing. I'll, there are three very difficult things to study. The Holy Trinity, quantum mechanics, and the European Union. So it's just, <laughs> um, you know, I, I moved to Europe partly, you know, to, to study about the European Union. It's, but basically, the best way to put it is it's this odd combination of a complex, messy, medieval structure like the Holy Roman Empire and very modernist bureaucracy. So the European Union is a quasi-political union of most states in Europe. The majority of powers remain at the state level, but very, very, some very, very important national powers have been delegated to Brussels. Now, normally, you have a central government. So the European pattern is people vote for a parliament. And then the parliament directly sets up a prime minister and a cabinet. There will also usually be a president who's often usually directly elected, not always. But the people have a sense of direct participation in the running of their affairs because they can vote for or vote against a party, a member of parliament, and that can set up or bring down a government in this one state that's responsible for everything. The European Union, on the other hand, takes in a significant part of sovereign powers from the states, but there's no really central decision-making body. There are about seven different organs or institutions there. One of the most important ones is the European Commission, which is what most people think of when they say Brussels. The European Commission is a large bureaucratic entity headed by commissioners who are appointed or agreed upon by heads of state of the different European countries. The European Commission is a, is a big bureaucratic organization that really sets up, implements the regulations that affect European life. But there's the European... Okay, so, so yeah. Is that what was recent, the recent elections were for? No. Contrasting to the European Commission, which is the embodiment of technocracy, is the European Parliament. So the European Parliament is the only EU institution that's directly elected, that's directly accountable to the people of Europe. So every citizen of the European Union, and if you're a citizen of any one member state of the European Union, you're automatically a citizen of the European Union. Every citizen of the European Union can vote in an election to choose the European Parliament. So you have lots of different political parties. In America, it's Coke and Pepsi, Democrats and Republicans, two main parties dominating Europe. Big tradition of lots of different political parties. You vote for political parties, you vote for these members of parliament, and they go to Brussels or Strasbourg. And not, we're not quite sure what they can do because a regular legislature like the US Congress or a regular European Parliament can initiate legislation. Now, normally, a democratically elected legislature 
like the U.S. Congress or the Parliament in the European country, has complete legislative authority. They can propose laws, vote against laws, approve laws. It's really up to the Parliament to make that decision. The European Parliament is a very different beast. We can't get into the details right now. Like I said, the European Union is like quantum mechanics, but to make it very simple, at the risk of being simplistic, the European Commission, which is a big bureaucratic entity, it alone has the right to say, let's do this law. It alone can initiate a law. The European Parliament can vote on that law, but its vote doesn't take immediate effect. The European Parliament must co-legislate with the Council of the European Union, which acts like a kind of Senate. It's not directly elected by the European Union population. It's made of the ministers of the European Union member states. So the European Parliament has some authority over legislation, but not a lot. Oh, okay. And the, the recent elections were for the European Parliament. Right. And right. And the so, big the big irony here is the European Parliament is the most public part of the European Union because it's the most democratic, but in a way it has the least power. So that's so, so we I, yes. So would I be correct in saying that the significance of the recent elections were primarily it's primarily symbolic. Um, maybe to large degree it's symbolic, but also you know, again the European Union, the European Parliament has some power, has some authority in affecting the laws and regulations that come through the European Union. It's a mixture of practical policy impact, but also theater, also symbolism. It does express is a barometer of European political feeling, and then that can feed back into the national politics, so especially okay. with, with Britain. So in there's been this huge soul-consuming controversy over Brexit in Britain. And in the European Parliament elections, the British party that did the best, that came in at number one, not the majority, about 31% of the vote, but still the biggest single chunk of votes was the Brexit party, founded just basically a couple of months ago. By Nigel Farage. The Brexit party got number one place. So I don't know how much power Nigel Farage is going to have in the European Parliament, but that's going to have a big effect back on UK politics. So, so what, what, what does a Brexit politician actually do in the European Parliament? Do they just go there and try to create self-destruction and chaos? I mean, how, how does that work if you're anti-EU, but you're, you've been elected to the European Parliament? I know Nigel Farage in the European Parliament is like a Zen Buddhism paradox. You know, what's the sound of one hand clapping? What's the sound of Nigel, you know, speaking in the European Parliament Assembly? Uh, it's yeah, but, you know, well, as he's part of what's called Euroskeptics, the Euroskepticism. So Euroskeptics believe that the European Union has become too powerful. Moderate Euroskeptics want to moderate it, reform it. The more extreme ones want to abolish it. Uh, Brexit is more at the sort of extreme kind of spectrum. So what they're doing there is using, you know, they will vote on legislation that's more in the reform direction, but it's also a platform for them to to give their 
views about national sovereignty. And a lot, a lot of it is really playing for the domestic vote, too. Yeah. Okay, so big picture, Europe-wide, what are we seeing from, from these election results about how ordinary people feel um, about, about things in, in, in general? Uh, maybe, that's, maybe that's too broad because the situation is very different in um, different European countries. But are there any general trends that, w- that are revealed in the recent election? Yes, yes. Certainly, there are some general pan-European, Europe-wide trends we can see from this election. Like you said, it's mostly about what's going on in each particular country. Each nation, each member state has its own approach, issues with the European Union. But there's some general trends that come out. I'd say that three of these trends are, one, that most Europeans think that the European Union is significant for them. because we had a record turnout, at least higher turnout than in a lot of years. So in the last election, which was in 2014, 42% of people turned out. Here we got 51% turnout. So strong interest. Oh. Second, wow. ta- second takeaway is that, as Yates says, the center does not hold. People are disenchanted with the establishment. So the two big establishment parliamentary groups, the Coke and Pepsi, as it were, of the European Parliament, the European People's Party, which is center-right, and the Social Democrats, so, uh, the Social Democratic Foundation uh, Party, um, which is center-left, they, for the first time, they lost their absolute majority. In the past, those two big, big parties, the, basically the old-school Christian Democrats and Social Democrats, had the majority, they had the lock on parliament, they lost that. They're still the b- biggest group, but they no longer have the absolute majority. Parties that did do well are more outlier parties, such as the Greens and the National Populist Conservatives. Also, the what are called liberals in Europe, which are more like sort of, maybe you might call sort of soft libertarians, you might call it. They also did well. So the first takeaway, most Europeans are concerned about the European Union. Second takeaway, they're upset with the establishment. The center does not hold. Third, Europeans cannot agree on an alternative to the center. Now, the national populist parties, the parties that the press likes to call far right, did very well. They did better than the past. It was a big surge, but they only got 30% about of the European Parliament seats. Plus, the Eurosceptic and nationalist parties in Europe are divided among themselves. There are three different parliamentary groups in the European Parliament that represent sort of the nationalist populist sentiment in Europe. So, okay. div- div- one third divided among themselves. And so there's no, there's no consensus as to what's going to replace the center. So there's a bit of a stalemate here. Okay, yeah. Now, I suspect that as concern about immigration continues, um, as well as um, hysteria against Islam, that we're going to probably be seeing a precipitous rise in nationalism over the next decade. Um, what's, what's your take on that? 
unless there's an economic crisis, I think that the national populist movement very easily hits a ceiling. You look in any European country, they never get a majority. They reach about maybe 30% at the most, and then they can become, at most, a junior member of a coalition government. It would take, I think, an economic crisis to really enable them to break that ceiling. And part of that is, in Europe, World War II is not history. It's news. And there are lots of people who are willing to say, yes, well, there are many different kinds of nationalism and the kind of nationalism that Le Pen or uh, Freedom Party of Austria or these other parties are doing. They're not, they're not Nazi or they're not fascist. But lots of other people do see things in, those way, in that way. So I think that's the number one obstacle that national populist parties would have to overcome. And there are also other issues, too. There are lots of concerns about crime. There's concerns about climate change, especially among the young. That's a big reason why the Greens were able to do well, especially in Western Europe, but also jobs and the economy. So the Eurozone is a little bit different from the European Union. Not all European Union countries are in the Euro, but most are. The Eurozone puts a break on growth. Since it's been adopted, European Eurozone countries simply do not, on the whole, do not grow very well. And that's okay, created... I'm just going I'm, I'm, I'm to stop you. For the sake of our listeners, the Eurozone is where they have the Euro currency. Correct? Exactly, exactly. Let's put this in practical terms. Suppose you're going on summer holiday, summer vacation to Europe. How are you going to buy your souvenirs, your bus rides, your tickets to the museums, pay for the hotel, how are you going to do it? How are you going to compare prices? Well, there's a very easy, convenient thing for you. It's called the euro. Most countries in the European Union have the same currency. It's the euro. Uh, when you look in menus and prices, it'll be an E with two horizontal lines through it. Makes it very simple. But you go into certain countries, you go into Sweden, go to Poland, they'll have, still have their own national currencies. So then, Britain, Britain yeah, Britain is, far, is really the most famous example, of course, it, well, we don't know, but probably at some point it's going to leave the European Union. But even though it's been a European Union member, you have to buy things in pounds, in pence. So if you're doing your summer vacation, most people stop in London first, so you convert your dollars into pounds, then you cross the channel and you convert your pounds into euros. Those euros are good in France, Spain, Germany, Italy, most places you're going to visit. But a few places you go to, like Poland, you know, then you have to convert to, you know, to the national currency. So the eurozone is that area where tourists don't have to worry about changing from one currency to another. You have a euro in France is going to work perfectly well in the whole eurozone. It's good for tourists. Wow. It's bad for young people because youth unemployment has youth employment has suffered because the eurozone puts a big break on growth. We have no time to really go into the whys and wherefores of this, but I'm just giving as part of the climate in in Europe, the lack, this economic stagnation in Europe as a whole, chronic unemployment is creating 
big problems and is fueling a lot of the resentment, say, that we see in France with the Yellow Vest protests, with the rise of the populist right and populist left in Italy, like Dr. Steve Turley said, in Italy, there's no longer really a center-right or center-left. You're either national populist right or left populist. Well, um, uh, yeah, okay, it's, it's, we're going to actually have to be ending, but do you have any uh, final takeaway points about the European situation or any uh, last observations to share? Yes. My number one advice is to beware of easy binaries, easy black and white divisions. So the establishment likes to say the choice is clear. Either it's authoritarianism or democracy. And you know, in our conservative circles, it's usually the binary. The division is, well, either you're a globalist or you're a nationalist. And speaking in terms of the great tradition, you know, it's really not that simple. But there is increasing convergence between European politics and American politics. And we as Americans need to really pay attention to what's going on in Europe. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Robin. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. The Robin and Boom Show is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you. To become a patron of the show, go to robinmarkphillips.com and select The Robin Boom Show from the drop-down menu. If you have questions you'd like to have addressed on a future episode, send us a message through our Facebook page. Once again, thanks for listening.